I'm so excited today because I've managed to coerce one of my dear friends to join me on my podcast today. He was a little bit shy to come on, but I convinced him and I mean, he's absolutely brilliant. He's the most amazing writer, director, lyricist, stand-up comedian. I mean, he's He's so prolific. It's a bit scary. He's also a lovely, lovely man. And I think you'll enjoy meeting him. It's Ben Elton. Mr. Elton, I've finally got you to do my podcast. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for doing no, it's it. It's my, my pleasure, Twiggs. You know, I always always wanted to do it and, and the stars have collided uh, or aligned rather than collided. So here <laughs> we are. Or collided. Yeah, you're the star. No, no, but, you know, I know I know how busy you are and, you know, you do so – I mean – we're friends, so everybody knows. We do know each other. And I know most of the things you've done over the years. But when I read your bio, I mean, you are so prolific. It's a bit frightening. I felt very much an underachiever compared. Oh. I mean, you you do. When do you get time to live? Well, I, I get <laughs> You, know, you I write get novels, this. you write musicals, you're a stand-up comic, you're an actor. I mean, amazing. Well, not really much uh, much of an actor, but I, I, I get this sometimes people say that but of course it's all happened over 40 years so you know people say, oh, the young ones the black adder well you know they, those were in the 80s and and although i do work hard uh, i don't honestly feel i work you know in any sense uh, abnormally hard certainly not you know my brothers and sister they all did what what we in the business darling call proper jobs <laughs> and you know they, oh, they yeah. get up early and, and get home you know sometimes mid-evening so I do certainly as a writer, I, I follow the, you know, an old coward used to always like to get a few hours done a day. I'm a great admirer of his. And I, and I certainly, when I'm writing, I do that. But yeah, I mean, I have lots of time for family, lots of holidays. I do a lot of cooking. I'm sure we'll talk about all this, but I don't, I, yes, I, we will. We will. I've been taught, I have often been called a workaholic and I hope I don't sound like I'm protesting too much when I, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm, absolutely able not to work and i i'm fortunate that i've got you know enough financial security to mm. i never experienced writer's block because writer's block is just a way of, of telling you, you you know you you probably need to just step back from the computer for a moment and i can do that without worrying so yeah i work hard but as i say my achievements spread four decades as a as a writer are you one of the writers that you designate a time of day that, you know, I'm going to get up and I'm going to sit down at the computer or my papers at eight in the morning and work till midday and then, or, or is it when the muse descends that you do well, it? Well, it's kind of both. I've never had an absolute timing thing, apart from anything else for, for, for most of the last 20 years. I've, I've had, you know, kids in the house, so that, that messes yeah. with timing a lot. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> they're all grown up now, but only just. So I'm sort of readjusting now to a life where I don't have that you know, school mm. lunches to worry about and the pickup. Of course, Sophie does a lot of that as well, most of it. But I, I did enough for it certainly to 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 impact on my timetabling. But I like to, if, I, if I'm writing, I definitely, the morning's the best. Um, so I, there weren't so much when I was younger. I definitely think age plays a real factor. You are less mentally resilient and energetic. I mean, uh, I, I definitely have noticed that I'm, I'm much better off working in the morning. So I can work in the yeah. afternoon, particularly if there's like some serious thing that I've really got to to do, but self-motivating. You know, if, I, if it was like, it's got to be done, you know, we need this this little piece of creative work for this tomorrow, you've got to, you know, then I could probably, you know, <laughs> I can work probably any time. But when it's a question of motivating yourself to to write a novel or whatever, I'm, I'm best in the mornings. And, uh, yeah, I try and get my desk you know sometime early-ish and not not leave it too early-ish if I'm working on something but I I often am not uh and uh so then I I take it a bit easier on myself I've been touring the last two years back to stand-up comedy again I well, know I you I want to get onto that before we go any further have you got your cup of tea I do have my sorry yes you'll find out <laughs> I don't need what questions. What do you drink? So, uh, I'm a builder's tea person. I, I drink English breakfast. I, okay. I'm not a fan of uh, – my wife loves an Earl Grey, but I, I like I it. I know. I remember last basic. time you came over to us and I said, I do a, a 
English Breck and Earl Grey mix, and you went, no Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Earl Grey on its own. It's a bit too perfumey. But if yes. you mix it with English breakfast, it's very, very nice. It's very I subtle. Should, I should be more adventurous. I, 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 I'm dropping a name here, but Rowan Atkinson introduced me to a, a tea that had a strawberry infusion. It was basically, I think, breakfast tea with a touch of strawberry. Wow. And it was very, very nice. I, I can't deny it. Oh, but, and did uh, you have it with milk? Uh, yeah, yeah. With milk or just... Yeah, right. with milk, it doesn't sound right oh. for those strawberries and cream, you know. I mean, you could mix dairy yeah, and strawberries, true. famous. True enough, true uh, enough. But he, he sent me a bag, but it was loose tea. And although I've always known I ought to get into teapots, tea bags are so much easier. I noticed they're on your logo, I and I and I, I kind of agree with that. <laughs> Can you compost them? <laughs> I, it feels wrong, but we do compost them. I believe they are the ones we buy anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. there are certain brands that you can compost and they're the ones we should use. <laughs> yeah, it's quite right. Anyway, it's very exciting because Upstart Crow, the stage play, is reopening because you got hit by the opening of COVID, didn't you? Well, I came to the premiere I know and you it, did. How long did it run for a week? Didn't Gosh, it? Gosh, I treasure, I treasure the photo of you, me, and Rod Stewart at the uh, premiere. That was a, that was a. Star. It was a brilliant I, night. I, I was, uh, I was definitely the farty in a star sandwich that day. I must say, goodness gracious! <laughs> uh, uh, this my wife almost wanted to frame it. Um, the uh, yeah, we like everybody else. I mean, the cultural catastrophe of COVID. Of course, there are many catastrophes, and and and. You know those who, who who suffered from it or lost loved ones. That's even worse. But I, I mean, I have to say, I, I think what happened to theatre and live entertainment was a far, mm. far greater disaster than people are even understanding yet. Um, mm. To take a whole generation of young artists and and tell them to pause for two years. You know, I, I, one of my our leading lady, our wonderful Scaramouche in uh, the current tour of We Will Rock You that got paused for two years, um, mm -hmm. she, she was saying, you know, I think we ought to be allowed to to call ourselves two years younger. You know, she's, you know instead of being yeah. 25, she would still be 23 because everybody stopped at that point. And I, right. I think particularly for young people, you know, theatre, live theatre arts is my life. And we, I, I was very, we, I, I was only part of the closing of two shows, Upstart Crow in London, and we will rock you on the road, but it was unimagined. And my own stand-up, but that didn't matter so much. It was unimaginable. Because you, 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 you went back into stand-up, what, in 2019? So were you in the middle of a tour? Well, no, it, it sort of worked out a little bit better for me. I, I did the, yeah, after 15 years away from stand-up, mainly because I was mm -hmm. a family person bringing up, you know, being part of the family and the child and all the children and all that. I went back on the road in 2019 and did, luckily I did the whole of the UK uh, tour through three and a half months in the autumn of 19. And then I was scheduled to go and complete it in Australia and New Zealand in, in what would be our spring of 2020. And then hopefully a little London season uh, to, to come back and finally finish it. But that got stopped. So uh, yeah. I, I was on pause for 18 months. I did eventually manage the Australian New Zealand tour in 2021 and dodging lockdowns, dodging border closures, dodging quarantines, constantly. But it, the they were better at, con weren't they better in Australia of containing it? Well, because they an, locked down very quickly, it, didn't it they? It depends. No, I mean, Melbourne, the Victoria and Melbourne in particular um, had a, I mean, a brutal and a, a truly terrible, heartbreaking time. Both my boys were there. Uh, and they they had over two hundred days of really serious lockdown. I mean, as as severe a oh lockdown as as we had at all here in Britain. I was in Western Australia, which was a very strange thing. I hadn't intended to be. I'd gone home at the end of my British tour, intending to to carry on in Australia and New Zealand. And then, as I say, come back to Britain uh, for the end of Upstart Crow, the Olivias for which we were nominated. Lots oh, of exciting things. No. But when I got back to Western Australia, almost immediately the Western Australia border was locked. And when I say locked, it was properly locked. You couldn't, even, right. get in. You couldn't even get in from the eastern states. So Western Australia wow. did achieve, yeah, but, and with that they achieved zero COVID. And, in fact, the 18 months that most people were in and out of lockdown, there was no lockdown at all in WA. And so in fact, you lived a kind of normal, a normal life. We had five weeks of lockdown <laughs> and then that was it. And in fact, the theatres opened pretty soon. And there was an interesting statistic. I wrote to Brian and Brian May and Roger Taylor about it because there was a, 
an amateur production of We Will Rock You that was mounted in in uh, late 2019, uh, 2020, late 2020, a, a week, a little run of a week, and it was the highest grossing stage show in the world. So it was a very, it was a very sad <laughs> statistic, brilliant. but also very funny. I said, Queen, do it again. You know, only Queen could achieve this. Amazing. I mean, it was an amateur. Of course, it was a tiny gross, but Broadway was closed, West End, everywhere was closed. Um, that is so, brilliant. So, yeah, we were, we were trapped in WA. It was a very nice place to be trapped. My wife's from Western Australia. That's why I'm kind of half And you, you live in both places, yeah. don't you, in England and in Western yes, Australia? absolutely. Uh, but as I say, I really shifted the focus of my life back to Britain in 2019 and had intended to carry on with that. And then we got trapped. We were lucky. We Our daughter was... Um, was at Cambridge and she uh, missed her last but got out we said you should really come home and she said no this is never going to happen nobody believed it did they we all thought this can't be true but she did come back and if she hadn't we wouldn't have seen her for nearly two years because as I say that's right because they just closed everything borders were locked I mean even to other Australians Mm. so every every different community had a very different experience of COVID but what linked us all apart from you know, the tragedy of, of losing loved ones and not being there for them, etc., was the end of of theatre arts, the end of live entertainment, the end of music. My wife's a bass player. I'm a comedian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we had so many friends whose lives were devastated and all the young people I've been mm-hmm. working with on Rock You. Um, anyway, we're through it now. and uh, uh, We are through it now. Unless the monkeypox gets us. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Gosh. Well, I mean, all those when that came hands. on the news yesterday, yeah. I thought I can't even bear to watch yeah. this. But apparently, it's not as infectious. <laughs> well, let's hope. Oh God, I don't. I don't even want to go there. Yeah. So you were you were born in Catford, Catford right, yeah. in London, South East London, and yes. then you moved to Guildford. I've done my research. Well, you yes. See. When we were when I was ten, my father was a, a, a lecturer in physics at the uh, Battersea College of Technology. Um, which became under Wilson's university expansion scheme, became what we called the Yellow Bricks, those 60s universities that were developed. Uh, and uh, it, Battersea College of Technology became Surrey University, and my dad moved with it okay. and, and became head of physics there. And so that's why we left when I was 10 and, uh, and moved to Guildford. Guildford's a nice place to grow up, I would yeah, think. Yeah, very nice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, very nice. I mean, it, it wasn't quite as posh as people sort of think it is. Um, I went to, you know, but, but it, it, yeah, it was lovely. I didn't, I was very sad to move from Catford. I loved Catford. I had lots of friends there. Uh, but I was very happy in Guildford. And of course, I think know, it's always hard for kids to move because they have their group of friends don't they absolutely absolutely i mean i only did it once especially when how old were you when you moved from catford so it was it was sort of about right i i had one more year because you've got best friends then haven't you yeah oh absolutely but you know yeah only happened once both i mean i know jenny and dawn french and saunders who of course you know and i know very very well they both you know had kind of military background they moved all the time and the stories wow. they have of being the kid who just gets stuck at the back with a book because you're not going to be here long, are oh. you? That must have no. been really hard. No, it didn't affect me too bad. Yeah, I had when my, when I was, I must have been about 10 or 11, my best friend, you know, when you're that age, your best friend is your, you know, you love them. My best girlfriend, Brenda James, her mum and dad emigrated to Australia. Ooh. And I was... I, I was distraught for yeah. months and months and months. We're still in touch, funny. Wow, enough. well done, because in those days it would have been letters. I mean, uh, that would have taken yeah. a week or well, two. Well, we did. You know? We wrote letters. Mm. Yeah, because this would have been about, I was born in 49, so this would have been about 59, 60. Wow. But it was, it, I, I can remember that feeling now when I talk about it. I remember the feeling in my stomach when, I, when she said they were going. Because, you know, to us, Australia was, well, I mean, it is so far away, but in those days, Really we kept up friendships for a little. I can remember a couple of my London pals came and visited us, I think, twice. I mean, things like, you know, when you're young, you yeah. move on. And uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it wasn't too – it wasn't remotely traumatic. It was a it was a vaguely difficult thing, but uh, I soon settled in at new schools and yeah. uh, all was well. Well, I think I, – I mean, kids do adapt in the end. They have to, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so you, you, I read in your bio that you joined an amateur – theatre group is yeah. that right drama Dra- group that was my um that oh, was became... that when you got the bug and realized absolutely 100 i got the bug literally on a on a overnight um i had no real ambitions i um 
Uh, I loved reading history as a kid, always have. But apart from that, I didn't, you know, having sort of got over wanting to be a soldier at about the age of about eight, I, I didn't have any idea of what I wanted to do, as most kids don't. But then I, I very early on realised what I wanted to do because there was a production of um, Peter Pan at the uh, Onslow Village Hall. The uh, curtain raisers were putting it on for three nights. There was an advert at our school <laughs> saying they were looking for lost boys and they could be girls in oh. brackets. Uh, and uh, I, my mum, I sort of was excited and then forgot about it. But my mum remembered and said, you should really go along. She guessed that I would enjoy it. And I absolutely loved it. I, I played Slightly Soiled one of the Lost Boys, we were doing the, the Jay and Barry play, not, not the sort of modern panto version. And I understudied John, the one in the top hat and the, with the umbrella, and oh, yeah. just yeah. loved it. And I decided immediately that I wanted to be an actor and immediately got involved in any Amdram I could. I did lots of Amdram throughout my adolescence. Uh, and my Artful Dodger uh, is fondly remembered in uh, in, in Godalming. Oh. <laughs> well, certainly probably remembered by me. Uh, and, I uh, bet you were a brilliant artist. I, I got the, the Surrey advertiser were kind enough to say I showed great <laughs> promise for the future, uh, and I like to I like to add that that's about the last good review I got for about thirty years, but uh, not quite true. <laughs> but I certainly got some stinkers after that. Um, but I thought I wanted to be an actor, and then one day when I was about 11 or 12, it was Noel Coward's 70th in 1971, and, and there was a documentary on the BBC, and I saw it. I mean, it's funny, an 11-year-old or 12-year-old boy watching that. But I just loved it. The idea of living a life, writing funny lines, and I, I just felt immediate empathy with him. I, I kind of felt he's who I want to be, you know, like writing. I'd love to have been able to write tunes as well, and I, I, that would have been the icing on the cake. But, you know, Noel Coward was a great deal more multi-talented than I am. But, yeah, the idea of living in theatre, writing, and immediately I realised I wanted to be a writer, not an actor. And that was, that was quite a youthful decision. Oh, how interesting. As a kid, did you write stories and did you, I mean, because you're such a brilliant, I mean, you've done what, 16, 17 novels or six, something? I six, mean, 16 novels, yes, <laughs> and that's my hobby. Um, <laughs> I only started writing novels because I, I needed something to do while I was courting Sophie out in Australia. I, yeah. did, I think I've told you this before. When you first came over to our flat for dinner, when we, I was trying to actually remember, I can't remember how we actually first met. But you came for dinner, do you remember? I do, with Richard Curtis, um, and co-writer of The Black Adder at the time. We were working, yeah. Yeah, was it? Maybe we met through Richard. It's I possible. can't remember. Anyway, yeah. we did. And you came to dinner and Carly, my, uh, our daughter, you know you know Carly. Of course. She was a teenager then. I mean, she's grown up now with babies and things. Mm. But... Um, and she she'd read a couple of your books, and when you came in, she was she was so excited. She was very together and said hello to you and very proper. And then she ran down to her bedroom, and I went I went down to I said, "What's the matter? What's the matter?" And she'd gone into the bedroom to scream into her pillow because she couldn't believe that she was meeting you for the first time. And then she came back up and totally behaved cool. normally. Totally cool. I had no <laughs> idea that I was causing this excitement, uh, intellectual excitement, I hate to add, and I'm very proud of that, that she, she uh, teenage girl, and she loved my books. It was incredible. She told she me did. that she calmly. Absolutely, and yeah. it, it's a really lovely thing when anybody reads a novel you've written. I mean, I, it's, it's, I think, the greatest compliment that can be paid to an artist. I mean, anyone can watch an episode of The Black Adder or a bit of stand-up, and that's great. And, of course, it's fantastic when people say to me, we liked your sitcom or we liked this or that or a play. But to commit to reading an entire novel, to engage with the imagination of another, it's a very intimate relationship. When somebody says, I read your novel, I, I've, I mm. feel moved. I think, my goodness, you've given me oh, hours of your time. You've, you've allowed me into your head and, in a way, you're in mine now and and it's a it's a very intimate relationship reading reading someone's novel and when someone young says says it it's it's particularly special because you know as it, even then i mean i was obviously a lot younger then than i am now but i was certainly in my 30s and the idea that you know a, a young mind wants to give some of its time you know to your thoughts and ideas i can remember being so pleased uh, and still whenever oh, says to me oh you probably hear this <laughs> but i love your novels that's i don't think any novelist ever gets sick of hearing that because you think oh my god you actually read all those words thank you <laughs> yeah no i know i know what you mean i mean it must 
I've never written a novel, so I don't know the feeling. But I wanted to ask you about, because stand, I always think, you know, I, I've done lots of different things in my career, you know, from modelling to acting to singing to dancing. And, you know, some things are scarier than others. You know, live shows are scary. But I always think that doing stand-up must be this. I've never done that. And I can't even imagine what it's like. Is it absolutely terrifying? <laughs> well, I can only speak for myself. Um, although I'm certainly in the 80s when I knew a lot more comics than I do now, you know, quite a lot of them, you know, there was a bit of a thing with people taking drugs and drinking, so maybe that's something comics have taken. I don't, you know, I, I something I've never done. I've always, always thought the moment you kind of calm your nerves with any false, you know, substance, you're going to be, I don't, know, I don't do drugs and never have anyway, but I love a drink, but I've never drunk before a gig, um, even though the temptation to calm your nerves is great. So I have some sympathy. I mean, Robin Williams famously was, you know, was for many years, was wired every gig he did. And I think that was probably nerves. I'm, and once you do a great gig, you know, on something, uh, whether it's a pint of, beer or a line of cocaine not that i would know about that and that's the honest truth i've always been very happy with booze then you probably think well i need that i, I was good that night so i and in order to be good again i'd better do it sorry we've segued a bit but i was just talking about nerves and and comics um and speaking for myself it is nerve-wracking but if you stayed as nervous as you do when you when you first start doing it you'd have to stop because it's physically physically debilitating. I mean, I, I used to do a joke. It's not it's not very tasteful, tweaks and I hate it. But I think it's probably broadcastable. Right. I used to say that you know, <laughs> Mother Nature located the nervous system strangely in in the middle of the digestive system. You know, you feel these nerves in your gut and in your bowel and in your bladder. And uh, you know, I used to say this is when I was a lot younger. I'd say, you know, my I, I'm I'm only thirty, but my asshole can remember the war. You know, because it ages at twice the speed of. <laughs> Is or her of, of of your body because you are in such, um, in such kind of yeah you know I used to not be able to, if I didn't have a bowl of cornflakes on the day of a gig in the morning then I wasn't going to eat all day because you just couldn't eat but that that goes no. or at least in my in my experience it, it, it calmed down you know I hated it I hated the nerves I hated the fear hanging around in the dressing room with this desperate fear but it, slowly but surely you kind of get used to it you realize they can kind of you know they can make you feel awful but they can't actually kill you although you know it's, people getting hit on stage these days at the Oscars who knows anymore oh my but God, uh, yeah. and this sort of behavioral standards seem to collapse you know I'm sure it actually is probably more scary now I, yeah, I, I don't get nerves anymore and I haven't had for, for decades. The first year was horrible, but somehow I got through it. And now I get, you know, there's a certain tension, but... I found that the scariest moment, because once you're on stage, you're on there, you've got to got to do it and it you, and it happens doesn't it because you you've learned it or whatever and it becomes but that minute and a half before you step on stage is this for me the scariest moment because you think oh my gosh I can't remember this I can't remember that and then you get on and it's fine I mean is that yeah. the same with stand-up I as I say I, I don't talk to a lot of stand-ups about stand-up I, I I know a few I don't watch it much myself it, it's because I'm always worried that other people's ideas will get in my head and I'll think, oh, I can't write that. Somebody else did that. So I actually yeah, avoid yeah, yeah. all my stand up because, you know, everyone's going to have a Starbucks routine and they're going to have a take on Johnson or whatever. So I don't really want to hear that. So I don't really, dis I mean, I've got lots of friends and I know some comics, but I don't really discuss it for myself. It's because, because I don't go on stage seeing myself as a performer. I go on stage absolutely seeing myself as a writer. I, I know I have a kind of facility to deliver it. I can, I, I've got some performance skills and I can do a few, you know, put on a voice to be a character or whatever. But what matters to me is the material. So I'm not really at the mercy of the kind of inspiration. I mean, when Rowan Atkinson or Rick Mayle, dear colleagues of mine, the late great Rick, when they mm. perform, they kind of have to find something which is indefinable. It's 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 the funny that only they have. Whereas for me, because my performance, well, I think perfectly effective, is not really the reason people, those who do like me as a comedian, like it. They like it because of what I'm saying. And so 
I suppose I'm less of a hostage to fortune in that respect because the material is much the same each night. Of course, it, it changes a little bit. You bounce it round. You, 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 you sometimes extemporize or whatever. But everything I say, basically, I've written. I've written down. I've learned it. I've, I've played with it on the, you know, to myself and then in some warm-up gigs. And so I kind of know what I'm doing. So the only fear is I'll forget it. And that is a big fear, that losing your thread. Because I did two and a half hours on stage and I talk. Fuck. Oh, you know, well, I'm two, two and a half. But because the ideas are my own and they develop logically from one to another, the chances of forgetting it, unless, you know, the brain starts to go, are quite small because that's, there's a certain logic in what I'm saying, or at least personal logic. So maybe that's why the nerves are much less because, as I say, I, I'm, I'm focusing absolutely on what I'm saying as opposed to how I'm going to say it. And I don't know, maybe maybe there's some sort of internal comfort in that. But but whilst I agree with you, those few minutes before you go on stage are tense, it's not even remotely in the same universe as the kind of nerves I used to have as a young man. I, I, I guess you just get used to it and know that you can do it. Mm. And that's not complacency. Mm. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I Every night I I... I don't think I'm as good as I should be and I try harder, which is perhaps sometimes the wrong thing to do. My wife says, relax, you're trying too hard. You start shouting when you think they're not listening, but actually, you know, they are listening or whatever. So yeah, it's tense, but it's not, it's not nerve wracking. Uh, I, I think that if you carried on being as nervous as you are, when you first start doing it, you'd have to stop. Mm. Have you ever been heckled? Very rarely. In the early days, of course, all the time, because the, the whole the whole nature of it in those days was based around a sort of glorification of the gladiatorial spirit. We, I was the compare at the com comedy store right at the beginning. Uh, I took over baseball from Alexi right in the in the summer of eighty one, and it was horrible. Mm -hmm. It was it was a gong show. There was a gong standing beside the stage, and the, and the audience knew that if they shouted gong and enough people shouted gong, the comedian, the compere, that was me because I sort of earned that right by being pretty good at being a comic, I, I found I had a facility and I very quickly became, you know, one of the people that got booked, got booked all the time. And I was asked to be the compare. It was Tony Allen just before me. And then Ale because Alexi had decamped the comic strip along with Rick and Aid and Jenny and Dawn. And the comedy store was kind of left with the, the sort of second generation who'd come along six months later, which included me. And I became the compare. And it was horrible. It was brutal. And, of course, most of the audiences were lovely, but there was always a table of lads. Jenny and Dawn would never play it because the first thing that happened was get your tits out. You know, that's that's changed a lot, thank goodness. I mean, of course, there are still yobbos. There are still, you know, there are still unpleasant people in audiences. But most most of the more obvious racist and, heck and sexist heckling that one would hear in the early 80s, people are at the very least slightly aware that they shouldn't say. I mean, that doesn't mean they don't necessarily say it, but there is, people are more aware. I think partly because of the battles that were fought over language in the, in the, in the 80s. I never use the C word on stage. I, I know that women have reclaimed no, I'm really it. I'm glad I to hear it. <laughs> I don't use, uh, I don't use feminist genitalia as the ultimate insight. It's just an example of sort of self-censorship, <laughs> a sort of political side to my comedy that was, I was sort of moved sideways. I'd, I'd say it was quite, you, you're quite political and sometimes not socially correct in some people's eyes, but that's what makes it so funny, isn't it? Well, I mean, I'm always correct in my own eyes. I don't say stuff I don't think is funny and, and, I, and I don't think he's honest. Um, you know, and most comics who are getting an easy laugh by massaging a prejudice know secretly that they're not really being funny. They're just getting a sort of tribal grunt from the audience, which has a certain comfort, but it's not real. It's not art. It's not comic art, uh, bullying. You know, I saw a, one of the very rare times I went to the comedy store in the, in recent years, I've probably only once or twice, but a comic came on and said, I hate dwarfs. And everybody oh, cheered God. and laughed because it was exactly, uh, but it, you know, it was a sort of, like everyone, oh, we're all being terribly un-PC and we're all kind of being, you know, roguish together. But I found it deeply depressing, I must say. Um, mm. But I don't, because I knew damn well he didn't. <laughs> you, know, he, uh, 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 you know, it was, anyway, I don't know quite why I brought that up. But uh, we were talk, talking about heckling. And in the early days, there was a lot of shouting and heckling. And I developed a very very 
aggressive style to deal with it. And I put it down and shut it down. I was the compare. I was responsible for the well-being of the evening. If I let the audience get away with it, then everybody was finished, particularly any act that had a slower or some more subtle approach, you know, needed time. So I talked mm. fast, I talked loud, I swore a lot, and I was aggressive. And, I, and that affected my style as a comic for years to, to follow. I, I sort of was in the shadow of the gong for many years after the heckling stopped. And I regret that. I don't think it's good for art. The, I never heard a witty heckle. This idea that the world's full of witty hecklers, I think it's absolutely not. I've never heard one. They all say the same one, taxi for Mr. So-and-so. Maybe that was said once. I don't know. It's just grunts in the darkness. Don't you think it's kind of showing off to their friends as well? Like uh, Absolutely. You know? I mean, to me, stand-up comedy <laughs> is an art form. It's a, it's a, it's exactly. a way of exploring ideas. It, 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 the idea that the many months I put into writing my routine, as I explained, I haven't been heckled in many, many, many years, and I hope this this isn't a red rag to a bull, but the last time I did, I would always very forcefully explain that I'd spent months working on what I had to say, that the people who had paid money and given up their evening had come to hear what I had to say, and, you know, the poster didn't feature Ben Elton plus some dickhead who can't keep his mouth shut. So that was, that was my... And I believe that from the, I believe that very strongly. I think the comedians have worked hard on their acts and nothing messes with the timing more. You know, there's a very small group of comics who work on audience participation, who, whose whole thing is dealing with the audience. And that's great. But if you're not faced with one of those, then you can absolutely presume that the comedian does not appreciate your, your interjections, even if they're supportive. It's not, uh, it, it's not a combat sport and it's not a sport. It's an art form. It's mm. uh, it, it, and for me, stand-up comedy is a great medium of ideas, and I've got a lot to say, and I want all the time I've earned on stage. Uh, and the only Absolutely. thing the audience have earned by buying a ticket is to see me. That's true, actually. Well, I take my hat off to you because I think it must be the hardest thing in our business to do. I've got to ask you about Blackadder because it's one of my mm -hmm. favourite things ever. Did you and Richard Curtis come up with it together or was it your idea or his idea or how did it all happen? Well, Richard and I have a bit of a rule that we, we never talk about who wrote which lines. There, there's mm -hmm. a sort of myth that he does the cute ones and I do the rude ones. That's not true. He can be rude and it's possible that I can be slightly cute, but uh, we were a real <laughs> collaboration. I... But no, the Blackadder started before me. There was a series okay. called The Blackadder, which was done in the very early 80s. And Rowan, and it was very different. It was, there was no studio audience. It was done on film in the, you know, the manner of modern sitcoms, although it wasn't single camera. It was really, it cost a lot of money. Um, and Rowan's character was kind of an idiot. He's sort of, sort of strange, sort of funny idiot. And, and funnily enough, Baldrick was the, was the, was the, the kind of sharp one, the cunning one. Anyway, it wasn't, uh, I liked it. I liked a lot of it. Um, it but it, it was genuinely thought not to be absolutely, it wasn't spot on it. And when the BBC suggested a second series, because Rowan was such a big star, even though it hadn't been a great hit the first adder, Rowan dropped out of writing. He'd co-written The Black Adder with Richard and he dropped out and Richard suggested approaching me. I didn't know Richard. Well, we just got to know each other because he and I, he'd, he'd contacted me out of the blue and said, I love the young ones and we should work together. Oh, yeah. uh, and I knew him from watching Not the Nine O'Clock News when I was at university. His original idea had been that we should try and write a sort of monkey style sitcom for the pop group Madness. And we, we sort of got quite a long way with it before the BBC gave up on it. But in the meantime, Richard suggested that he and I have a crack at writing Blackadder 2 between us. Uh, it changed radically. Um, my most important feelings were that it should be in a studio because Rowan and the rest of the gang were brilliant live comedians, uh, not necessarily brilliant film comedians. They turned out to be such. But I said, let's let's get back into the studio. Let's make medieval faulty towers. Let's have these people in front yeah. of the audience <laughs> being funny. And also, I didn't like Rowan's character in Blackadder 1. I, he was sort of playing an idiot, and I think Rowan's at his funniest. I mean, I know Mr Bean is a global success, and I, I appreciate it a lot. I, I wrote one episode. I did the exam episode. But it's not my favourite thing that Rowan does by a long way. Um, I think Rowan, at his most supercilious and superior best, is at his best. Um, mm. And I thought Rowan should be the cynical, clever one, and Baldrick should be the idiot. And, and Richard and I saw eye to eye on that. 
And so Blackadder 2 was born. And it's a very different thing. So Blackadder 2, 3, and 4, which is the medieval one, the Regency one, and the First World War one, those are the ones that uh, Richard and I wrote. I wasn't involved in the first one. So that's how I came to be a part of the Blackadder. I was very, very lucky that I got to write with Richard Curtis and, and write for Rowan Atkinson, one of the greatest comic artists of his of his era. And, you know, I think they were pretty pleased with my contribution. So all in all, it worked out. I think they're absolutely brilliant. And they really hold up. I mean, we were, we watched one a few months ago, and, and I mean, they're brilliant. And the, and the end one, the, you know, the end of the World War one is so upsetting. And over the, it was the over-the-top one, yes. That's an episode. I know. Yeah, we're very yes, we, we were very proud of that. It was a it was a big decision because obviously you know when it was written, I mean most people um, had still had relatives who'd been in that war. I mean it was written in the eighties. I mean not most people, but a lot. You know, both my grandparents were in it, and you know my my father's father won an Iron Cross. He served four Did years he? in the Kaiser's trenches. <gasps> so yeah, oh absolutely. my goodness, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and then, then he was. Then he was uh, forced to flee the country with the Nazis behind him because he was Jewish. Wow! But you, what you did win quite a lot of awards for Blackadder, didn't you? Didn't you win Baftas and Emmys? Yeah, and... I don't. Yeah, quite right. I don't know. It got an Emmy. No, it got Baftas, which was lovely, and I think there were some RTS awards. But the main reward is, is that people remember it now. The last episode was mm. written in 1989, the one you just referred to. So that's, uh, you know, that's 40, uh, no, for 33 years yeah. since it ended. And the fact that it still is held so fondly, I mean, you don't get many opportunities to enter the culture in the way we all did with Blackadder. I think the Blackadder team, yeah, exactly. whom I'm a proud member, are very proud that, that, that we've done something that seems to still be a part of Britishness. And it, and it entered the language. Blackadder talk, you're as small as a very small thing that's got a degree in being small. You know, that kind of language <laughs> entered the language. And um, and that was Richard and me. And, and yeah, it's a wonderful thing. That It sounds like a cheesy thing to say, but that really is one hell of an award and a reward to have people still quoting Blackadder, talking yeah. in Blackadder language and saying how much it meant to them. Yeah. But, you know, when you did up Start Crow on telly, you know, the TV series, I mean, you're, it still blows me away when we watch it because, you know, your knowledge, your knowledge of Shakespeare is unbelievable and the way you make it link to kind of modern day things going on here now is, I mean, hysterically funny. But, I, I mean, are you a big Shakespeare lover? Obviously, you must be because there's the references and the links to what happens today is incredible. I, well, I, it's very kind. I mean, I, 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 it's a similar sort of thing to the Blackadder, although much more complicated in that what, what the Blackadder joke and, and the Upstart Crow joke, which some of your listeners will know is a sitcom about Shakespeare and his family mm -hmm. life and his working life. Uh, and the joke is very much taking a modern attitude, taking a sort of modern person and placing them in, in, in history. That's Blackadder. And that's my Will Shakespeare played brilliantly by David Mitchell and, and certainly using his historical context and, and the fun one can have with the plays to make comments and humorous, to make fun of our, of our own age. And of course, that's mm. very, um, you ask, you know, am I a fan of Shakespeare? I think, you know, the reason Shakespeare remains so loved is because his work is continues to be modern, entirely contemporary. Once yeah. you can get through the language, and that's not easy, yeah. but once you can get past the difficulty of the form and the language, his insights into what it is to be human could have been written this morning. It never ceases to amaze any reader of Shakespeare that he constantly says something that makes you go, God, I feel that. I think that. I've had that experience. Mm. Uh, and so it lends itself very well to a modern comic writer looking back at his, his human observations and, 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 and really just drawing them into the, basically adding a 20th, 21st century sensibilities as such. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Look, I don't know as much about Shakespeare as people think I did. I do. I'm good at research. I know a bit and I've learned a lot through doing it. Uh, but it, 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 it's been a true labour of love. Um, I never thought I'd get another chance to get a sitcom on the BBC. Uh, it's the, the sitcom on the BBC is like the holy grail for a, a comic writer of my generation. 
I grew up with Fawlty Towers and Dad's Army and you know, goodness, uh, mm -hmm. likely lads. And the ITV ones as well, On the Buses, Man About the House, they, uh, Rising Dam. ITV was a powerhouse of comedy as well in the 70s when I was watching telly. Um, right. So, yeah, to be writing Upstart Crow in my 60s is, is a privilege and uh, it's not on anymore, but uh, we did three series and three Christmas specials and, uh, yeah, it was a very intense writing job. I mean, much more than the Adder. The Adder was kind of children's history. You can get it on iPlayer, presumably, if people want to re-watch it. I'm not sure. iPlayer's funny, isn't it? I'm sure you it? can. Can't it's you? most frustrating. They take it off and put it on. Yeah. Things come and go, actually. It's weird. But um, we said at the beginning that the stage play is reopening. So are you going to do it again as a, a new, I mean, as a reopening or carrying on from where you opened in 2020? Or are you going to have a opening night and do all that? Oh, if only. I can't believe you were there, Twiggy. What a glamorous night. I love a theatre. My love of Noel Coward. Opening nights on Shaftesbury Avenue. What could be more fun? Although the morning <laughs> after is often a very horrible experience when the reviews come out. I've had that. But with Upstart Crow, it was a wonderful experience because for once uh, I got away with it and we had marvellous, marvellous reactions and, and, an, and an Olivia nomination and it was a triumphant thing. And then as you say it closed a week later because of covid so yeah we are i don't think we'll do all that again um i'd like to think the critics might come and have a little, another look but it's the same same play <laughs> it's set 400 years ago so it doesn't need to be any more contemporary i might i might <laughs> throw a couple of a couple of play gags in uh, i did a christmas i did a christmas special set in lockdown on the bbc uh about a year and a half ago look not this past christmas one before that when everyone was in the depths of COVID, uh, I was very fortunate. I suggested to the BBC that we could do a, a two-hander because, you know, making telly at that time was very hard. There were all the restrictions. It was very hard to do any yeah. film and television. Uh, and the BBC was looking for content. And I wrote and I said, I know you're not doing any crows. You know, we've kind of had our, had our dash three series. But listen, why don't we do a lockdown special? The theatre's closed in Shakespeare's time because of pandemics, just as they've closed in our own mm -hmm. time. It's right. the first time since. Um, the theatres have been closed through illness. Shakespeare had to close the theatres a number of times because Plague was in town. I said, wow. look, so could not be a more contemporary relevant re relevance. Let's, how about we do a little a, a little special where Shakespeare's surviving lockdown. And, and even though I love the whole cast, I said, look, we could do it with just him and Gemma Whelan, who plays his landlady's daughter, just the two of them, everyone else has found other shelter. And they're stuck together getting through lockdown in the way we all were at the time. And fortunately, the BBC were really interested because they were looking for product they could make easily. And so we yeah. made that lockdown special, which had a lot of good jokes about masks and, and passing the time <laughs> and orders and, and all sorts, all the things we were going through and people clapping and on their doorsteps, et cetera. So I might slip a couple of those into play. But basically, the, the play is as it was two years ago, which was, um, you know, and those who book tickets, I hope, will rebook and... And, and others, hopefully, they'll come. It's, it stars Gemma and David. Oh, they, everyone, you should go and see it. It's brilliant. We loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's wonderful. Now, before I let you go, because we, I mean, I could talk for hours and hours, but <laughs> um, talk too much. as I know you can. <laughs> yeah, too much. But I just want, do you? Are you a big reader? Are you a cook? I mean, what do you do for like read? Do you cook? Do you sew? Do you knit? <laughs> my, I, I certainly, uh, I love my non-writing time. I love to read. I mainly <laughs> read history. I don't read a lot of fiction. Um, it's okay. funny because I'm quite a prolific novelist, but you know, I enjoy a novel. But I very, I rarely biography and history. Uh, I'm reading a fantastic book about the Mitford sisters at the moment. <laughs> I can't Ooh. get enough of that family. They were so crazy. Uh, I got thinking crazy. about them again because of the recent adaptation and, and all of that. Um, I, I mainly read history. As for recreation, I love to eat and I love to drink. I cook a lot. Um, I mm -hmm. did the majority of the family cooking when the kids were growing up. Not all, but oh, Sophie really? tended to do the house and because she won't oh. have a cleaner because she you get me dependent. So I said, oh, can, can we have a cleaner? No, no. We got, she gets, she's, anyway, we, we, uh, I, so I do a lot of cooking. I do roasts and pudding, nursery food, school dinner, good school dinner food, puddings, roasts, um, stews, casseroles. Comfort food. Yeah. 
Yorkshire pudding is my favourite thing of all, and I make very good Yorkshire puddings. Oh, do um, you? Oh, yes. I don't think uh, I've ever quantity. made. I don't think I've. Oh, really? It's quantity that's hard when you do Yorkshire puddings, and my kids like to eat a lot, and so do I. And I love a drink. Um, I'm these days. I don't drink every night. I did for decades and decades. Never had a night off, but not in a day. I don't drink in a day. That's a big treat: birthdays mm-hmm. and Christmas. But uh, I love to have a mm-hmm. glass of wine or a few beers in the evening. These days, we don't so much. We try and have a few school nights off. But I do. I do love that. That's a fun. I love to walk. I'm a big walker. I exercise every day. I live near a river in Western Australia, so paddleboarding is a big thing. Oh, wow. I made a rule many years ago that I wanted to carry on eating and drinking as much as I wanted, so I'd have to exercise a lot. So that's what I do. That's my payoff. Paddleboarding, my goodness. I mean, they haven't got horrible things in the river out there, have they, if you fall in? No, there's dolphins, actually, occasionally. I mean, dolphins oh, come up nice. and say hello. Yeah, it's lovely. For about three years, we were working in on and off in Florida, and people paddleboard there – but in the water, you know, they've got sharks and and in yeah. some of the rivers they've got alligators. Oh, I, I yeah. wouldn't do in that. In Australia, <laughs> you, you do have to be careful. I love paddleboarding in Britain as well if you can find a flat bit of water. I mean, a cold Scottish lock or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, you have to watch it in Australia. Our particular river's good. There are There has been a bull shark attack once in 50 years. They're small <gasps> sharks. So, but basically it's not, not a problem. But a lot of places in Australia, yeah, of course, uh, the beaches are getting quite dangerous again uh, because sharks have been protected. So <laughs> they're taking advantage oh, so of more literally of them, biting yeah. the hand that hasn't killed them. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> you do have to watch it a bit in Australia. But on the uh, uh, on our little stretch of river, basically there's just the dolphins and me. So before we go, if there's hopefully some young listeners out there who – want to get into the business as a writer or you know a performer have you got any words of advice getting into the business i don't really know so much about i'm not a producer and i never have been a producer i i I don't have a company i'm one of the few you know pretty successful writers who didn't then sort of form a company you know and become a sort of slightly corporate beast developing material but i'm just a lone free agent artist so when I was young, the way I would try to do it, and I would suggest might still work, is to find stuff you like, find out who makes it, and send them a little bit of material uh, and say, you know, say, you know, I know you get loads of stuff, but this is a short piece, and I love this. This is why I like your stuff, and this is why I'm sending you my stuff. And maybe they'll get to read it. I mean, I wrote to Paul Jackson on the two Ronnies 40 years ago and said, you know, I love the two Ronnies. I love the, you know, and here's a few little jokes. And I mean, I was lucky anyway, because our little generation sort of got hip very quickly, the alternative generate alternative yeah. comedy generation. So I wasn't struggling to get looked at for, a, for very long, but I would think that might be a useful thing in practical terms to find stuff you like, find out who makes it and try and reach out to them in, in, in some way and don't send them too much. So that's the practical thing. I don't know. You know, good luck with that. And then in terms of the art, all I can say, and I say it from the bottom of my heart, is follow the advice Polonius gives to Hamlet, and above all, to thine own self be true. I don't think you will ever succeed trying to please some mythical producer, some mythical fashion, or some idea of what people might want. I think one of the huge problems Hollywood has is they're constantly chasing last year's hit so well people want this and that doesn't the reason the last year's hit was a hit was because someone had a great original idea and did something beautiful Uh, you often get notes from producers more jokes like these and i go there there are no more jokes like that that's a unique joke that's a wonderful little nugget of comic art and you can't just reproduce it so what i'm saying is you have to write to please yourself you have to write what you think is good, not what you hope other people will like, because it won't last long if you do the latter. If you write to please yourself, it's possible you'll never get an audience, but at the very least you'll know you weren't trying to fool anyone. So write to please yourself. No, that's really good advice, actually. Well, on that note, I'm going to let you go off and cook. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to go for a run now. Beautiful evening here Are in Sussex. So I'm going out on the hills. To earn a pint of beer. (laughs) Sorry I've been banging on twigs. I I always talk too much. My wife says, you know, learn to listen, learn to listen. And I'll just tell you this one quick anecdote about when I was a kid. 
I was the youngest kid, so the last to go to school. So when I was like a toddler, I was just me and my mum, dad was at work. And I'd come down in the morning and I'd want to start nattering. And my mum had a rule that she had to have lifted her second cup of tea to her lips before I was allowed to start talking because she knew I would then talk all day. So she had a few <laughs> minutes. I'm still on her first cup of tea. So yeah, that that's me. And I'm still doing it now. That's hysterical. Well, thank you. Go off and have a lovely run and then have a really nice glass of wine when you get back. <laughs> I will indeed. I will indeed. And thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I love it. I love the show and I love you, Twiggy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Lots of love. Bye. Oh, that was so lovely catching up with Ben. God, he's so clever and he's done so many amazing things. So I advise you to get your tickets booked for Upstart Crow. It's fabulous. I saw it when it opened in 2020, just before it closed with COVID. Um, It's amazing. And David Mitchell's incredible. And I think you'll enjoy it. So book your seats now. Anyway, I hope you have a good week and I'll be back soon with another special guest. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production. 